So this morning, we are, like I said, we are continuing our series, uh, The Mission to Save the World. So we're going to be in the book of Acts, uh, and we're going to be in chapter 2. So I'm going to be honest with you, chapter 2, pretty long chapter, but we're going to get through it this morning. We're going to have a good time doing so. So as you open up your Bibles, go to Acts uh, chapter 2, and as we begin our time this morning, uh, I, want to, I want to point out, you know, there's a common practice in the restaurant world where uh, restaurants will use contests in order to challenge servers to, uh, to, to, uh, to boost a particular sale of a product. And uh, it's, really, it's really interesting. You know, there may be there are various reasons why a restaurant may pick a particular item in order to have their staff challenge to see who can sell the most. But uh, in some cases, uh, the restaurant may have too much of that particular item. You know, someone may have ordered too much, so, so they end up having a contest to see who can sell the most to kind of get it out of the house, uh, per se. Or, or in other cases, you know, the item might be new to the menu. So, so in order to get people to let them know about this new menu item, uh, the managers might challenge their staff to see who can sell the most to kind of uh, advertise uh, by way of, of, of really stressing this particular item, highlighting this item. And, uh, and they challenged the staff to see who can sell the most of a particular item. Well, a few years ago, uh, there was a particular food establishment that challenged their waiting staff to a contest to see who could sell the, uh, who could sell the most appetizers. So whichever, so they said, chall- we're challenging you guys, see who can sell uh, the most appetizers. And the person that sold the most appetizers was promised to win a new Toyota. It's a pretty good prize, right? So this particular, there was a particular waitress that was extremely excited about this particular contest. She was excited because she was in dire need of a new vehicle. So not only did she push appetizers to every table that she waited on, she was also picking up extra shifts at the restaurant so she could push more appetizers. You know, if you've, if you've been like me, you've probably been at a restaurant where uh, where the waiter or waitress is really stressing this appetizer, and you're thinking, man, are you getting a commission off of this particular item? Well, she may be trying to win a Toyota. Who knows? So, uh, so anyways, um, she, would, she would sell, and she would pick up more shifts to sell as many appetizers as possible. She would even tell the customers. She would just say, hey, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. The person who sells the most, uh, the, uh, the most amount of appetizers is going to win a new car. And she convinced many of them to purchase said appetizers. And apparently whatever she did, whatever tactic she had, was extremely successful. At the end of the time period of the contest, the managers held a meeting and announced that this particular waitress had won, uh, or had sold the most uh, appetizers uh, for this time period. And then they presented her with her new Toyota. And she was extremely disappointed. Rather than a vehicle, she got a toy Yoda doll from the Star Wars franchise. She was devastated. And she was let down and she was disappointed. And um, she was disappointed because she felt that uh, the thing that was promised to her, that her manager or managers did not, uh, did not complete their promise. Now, before you feel too bad for this said waitress, she took him to court, and she did get a new Toyota that she could drive her toy Yoda around town with. So she did get her car, 
But, uh, but at the time, she was extremely devastated. I bring this up because devastation would probably be a really mild term to use had Jesus left this earth without completing his promise, the promise to send his spirit. You see, even though our lives can be full of disappointments, this morning as we're in the book of Acts in chapter 2, we see yet again another time that God does not disappoint. You see, for generations, God had promised his spirit. Uh, we will see uh, at the day of Pentecost that, uh, that God fulfilled a massive promise. You see, in Joel chapter 2, God promised to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And in the book of John, we see that, uh, that Jesus taught about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He, he repeated this promise in uh, Acts chapter 1, which is what we covered last week. Uh, but this morning, we're going to see a wonderful reminder of God's promise-keeping nature. Now, this morning, if you look at Acts chapter 2, it's kind of broken up into three different uh, natural sections. You see, first off, the events of Pentecost, then you see Peter's first sermon, and then uh, what happens with the fellowship of the believers. So what's going to happen is uh, we're going to cover all of Acts chapter 2, but we're not going to read all of Acts chapter 2. So we're going to summarize parts where we can summarize. But beginning in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord reads this way. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at, and at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? They were going to jump down to verse, verse 12 and says, and all, who, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? They're talking about the events that they've just witnessed. What does this mean? And others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. You see, this morning we're reading about the events of Pentecost. You see, the day of Pentecost marks uh, one of the three major feasts on Israel's calendar. You see, the, the name comes from the fact that the feast marked the 50th day, uh, uh, the 50th day after Passover. You see, it's also referred to as the Feast of Weeks. And it's referred to as the Feast of Weeks because, uh, because the time that had passed was a week worth of weeks after Passover. So Passover occurring in mid-April, uh, so Pentecost, that would mean it would occur around the beginning of June. And uh, it, was, it was honestly the best attended of the, of the uh, feasts due to the fact that the traveling conditions at this time were the best. You see, being that there was never more of a cosmopolitan gathering in Jerusalem, it was a perfect time for the descent of the Holy Spirit of God. You see, this morning as we dive into that passage, we're going to see that there are three, there are more than three, but we're going to look at three distinct things that are seen in this passage. The first one's going to be the wind. You see, throughout the Pentecost event, God gave the church miraculous signs. We see that the sound of wind, uh, the, the, the sounds of wind were present. You see, the, the Hebrew word for wind is ruha. 
which is similar to breath. You see, in Ezekiel chapter 37, the power of the Spirit is likened to breathing life into corpses. You see, by the Holy Spirit breathing life into uh, the church, we're going to see what that means here in a little while. In a little while, not only do we see wind, we also see fire. You see, not only when, uh, not, not only did they hear the wind, there was fire present at Pentecost. You see, but if you think about it, the presence of uh, of fire is is not really surprising. You see, throughout the entirety of Scripture, throughout the Bible, we see that fire is a symbol of God's presence. Now, there are many, many occasions that this has occurred, but uh, but one of the most popular is we see, uh, beginning with Moses and the burning bush, we see that God is letting his presence be known through fire of the burning bush. You see, this continues on with the Israelites while they're, uh, while they're wandering in the wilderness, being led by a pillar of fire. This is God's symbolization of him leading the Israelites where they're going. You see, we also see that in Hebrews chapter 12, the author describes God as a consuming fire. So not only are we seeing that the Holy Spirit is breathing life into these believers, we're also seeing that it's the presence of God. And then the third thing that we see that's really unique for this situation is the language. You see, uh, we also see that the Holy Spirit filled the believers, uh, that they began to speak, and even though speaking different languages, they were, uh, they were able to understand one another. As you guys know, or many of you know, Pastor Chris and I, pre-COVID, led many mission trips to uh, Tegucigalpa, Honduras, and... Um, while we're there, we are gifted. We are blessed with uh, translators who are helping us. Their English is far better than my Spanish, for example. And uh, if you've ever been in a scenario, what happens is if you're speaking a different language, have you ever been in a situation where you're trying to communicate to someone who doesn't understand what you're saying, and then they, you know, they signal, "I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about," and then you decide that instead of speaking their language, you just yell it louder. Right? You, you yell it louder thinking that maybe if I scare them, they're going to understand what I'm talking No, that's not the case, right? Uh, communication, speaking the same language, is extremely important, yet they're speaking different languages, and yet they're able to understand one another. This instance is actually extremely, extremely telling because, you see, God in this moment partially reverses what he had done at the Tower of Babel. So if you started the reading plan a few weeks ago, you know, we saw in Genesis chapter, chapter 11... At that time, God separated the people and diversified their language because they were becoming too powerful. They were becoming too arrogant. So God, God disperses them and changes up their language. You see, here at Pentecost, God united everyone in Jerusalem by allowing the message of the gospel, by allowing the gospel to cross their language barriers. You see, it's important to, uh, to point out that this wasn't a complete reversal. You see, this wasn't a complete reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. You see, God did not, uh, did not give everyone the same language at Pentecost. You see, he didn't fully reverse what he has done in Genesis 11. However, he preserved their, their unique languages, yet everyone heard the same message. You see, whenever we look at Pentecost, we see our first point. You see, through Pentecost, God reaffirmed that the gospel is for all nations and all people. You see, the reason why God eliminated the, uh, the language barrier is so that everyone that was present got to hear the message of the gospel. You see, this is important uh, in regards to having an understanding of the gospel. It's, this reminds us that the gospel is not set aside for people that are based, uh, based on their economic status. You see, you don't have to earn a certain amount of money for the gospel to, uh, to be for you. 
You see, the gospel isn't based on our ethnicity. You see, the gospel isn't reserved for a certain people. You see, Christ's life, death, and resurrection was and is for the entire world. And here at Pentecost, it became very clear that the mission, or it became very clear what the mission of the church was. You see, this mission was already issued um, in Matthew chapter 28. You see, Matthew chapter 28, a very familiar passage to many of us in verse 19, says, "There uh, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, the, the, uh, the mission of the church was stated. It had already been issued. And while the Great Commission was extended at Pentecost, it became clear, it became extremely clear in how the mission was to be completed. You see, God empowers His believers God's, uh, God empowers his children for the sake of the gospel. And this is so refreshing. This is so refreshing that God doesn't say, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we're just sitting there wondering, like, how do we do this? And he says, go figure it out. You see, it's extremely refreshing that the order, the, the, uh, the mission that God has given the church is something through his Holy Spirit he empowers us to do. You see, upon the, uh, upon the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter began to preach to the crowd. In fact, this was Peter's first sermon. I'm going to be honest with you. Typically, a preacher's first sermon is their worst sermon. In fact, uh, the, uh, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon had a unique tradition at Spurgeon's uh, preacher college. He would provide students with a text of Scripture and they would have to preach it on the spot to Spurgeon, to Pastor Spurgeon and his staff. That's not terrifying at all, right? You just show up to class one day and then you're assigned a passage and then, hey, go preach it for all of us. Well, there's a particular day a student was given the subject, given the text of Zacchaeus. So he stood before, uh, before Pastor Spurgeon, before his colleagues, and said the following. Zacchaeus was of little stature. So am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree. So am I. Zacchaeus came down. So will I. And he proceeded to sit down and complete his sermon. Now, y'all aren't that lucky this morning. I'm sorry. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's not going to happen. I mean, they gave me 47 verses to cover, okay? But I would imagine that once this, uh, this, this future pastor sat down, Future preacher sat down. He probably went on to a successful career. After all, I'm sure all of his congregants got to lunch on time. Amen? You see, Peter's sermon was wildly considered and is wildly considered his best sermon. You see, some theologians go as far as to say that not only is it the best sermon of the New Testament, aside from the sermons that, uh, that Christ preached himself. And not only that, this is his first time that he has delivered a sermon. You see, the reason why this particular sermon was so great is because of the place that it occupies in the history of redemption. You see, this was the first sermon in the age of grace. You see, there were 3,000 converts, which we'll cover here in just a few moments. And it set the bar for being the model for the, uh, for the preaching of the apostles. You see, as we go in, we see in Acts chapter uh, 2, verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give, uh, and give ear 
to my words. He's basically calling for their attention. Guys, pay attention to what I'm about to say. In verse 15, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So he's saying, guys, they're not drunk. It's 9 a.m. They haven't been hitting it that hard, okay? What's happening here is not a result of alcohol. What's happening here is a result of the Holy Spirit. Now then, so, so Peter, that's, that's his welcome. Okay, that's his welcome to his sermon. That'd be like whenever I got up here, just, hey, you guys aren't drunk, let's get to partying. You know, like that's not what they're talking about. So he calls their attention. He, 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 he neutralizes the situation. He's like, do not think that these, that these believers are drunk on wine. And then he proceeds to cite three Old Testament passages to demonstrate, the, uh, to demonstrate biblically the events in which they have just witnessed at Pentecost. You see, the first, uh, the first Old Testament passage he uh, cites is Joel chapter 2. Uh, verses 28 uh, through 32. Now, now this is the problem with trying to cover a 48 verses. I'm sorry, 47 verses in the time that we have. We don't have the time to go to Joel chapter 2. But what Peter does is Peter quotes Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. And that's where Joel prophesied that God would pour out his spirit. So that's where he is prophesying that God is going to provide his spirit to us. And then Peter follows that up in verses 22 through 24, saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to, you by, uh, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, that, uh, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed, uh, killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing, uh, loosening the uh, pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, he is, uh, he is pointing to, uh, he then goes and points to how Jesus, Jesus was going to be crucified. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was killed. And yet, he resurrected. The second, the second Old Testament passage that Peter references at this point is Psalm 16, uh, 16 8 through 11. And uh, he goes, he was connecting that Jesus was the only one that David, uh, that David prophesied that, uh, that he would not see the decay of death. So he is stating that Jesus was the guy that was not going to decay because of death. And then he goes on in, 28, in 29 through 33. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he, may, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we, are, uh, we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So at this point, Peter is connecting what David has said to what they have just witnessed and what they've just experienced. You see, Peter's helping connect the dots of the Old Testament prophecies that they have studied, that they have read for generations. He's connecting these, uh, these, these things that they've studied to the events that they have personally witnessed. You see, in his final Old Testament passage, uh, uh, Peter then quotes um, Psalm 
110, verse 1, where David points out that the victory, points out the victory that Christ will experience. You see, the beauty of Peter's sermon was that it contained no manipulation. It contained no manipulation. It wasn't structured in a way to trick people into believing Jesus. You see, Peter's sermon simply pointed back to what Christ had done and proclaimed the things of Christ. Which brings us to our second point this morning. You see, the gospel is what Christ has done on our behalf. Not a list of rules to accomplish or a path to becoming a better you. You see, this is important because during Peter's sermon, he never, uh, he, he, never delis- he never delivered a list of things that was required for salvation. He didn't give them a 12-step program. Go do this, and then you're going to be fine. You see, uh, he didn't even take a moment to deliver a personal application to the people that were, that, that were there listening. You see, Peter simply pro- proclaimed what Christ has done and then called the people to respond to the gospel. You see, the reason why Peter's sermon was so great was because it was full of three different things. It was full of Christ, it was full of Scripture, and it was full of the Holy Spirit. You see, what's interesting about, about uh, Peter's sermon was that it wasn't only a message of grace. So I told you that Peter's sermon was beautiful because it was the first, it was the first sermon in this age of grace. You see, it wasn't just a sermon about the message of grace. It wasn't just Peter standing up there talking about how great Jesus was, although he did. Peter's sermon was also an example of God's grace. So I told you Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. You see, just 50 days before Peter preaching this sermon, Peter had committed the greatest denial of Jesus Christ in history. Peter was full of pride. Peter was arrogant. And as you recall, prior to Jesus' arrest, he was foretold. It was foretold that Peter would deny Christ, uh, which Peter went on not once, not twice, but denied Christ three times. Pastor and author uh, Arkin Hughes writes about this. He says, The result of Peter's fall was profound emptiness, as profound as any man has ever known. That had necessitated a pre-Pentecost restoration of Peter on the shores of Galilee when the Lord asked Peter three times to declare his love. His emptiness made way to Pentecost and as profound as, uh, and as profound a fullness as anyone has ever known. And Peter's overflowing fullness, talking about Peter's overflowing fullness of this grace, led him, led him to, tell, uh, to tell Israel the truth about their spiritual bankruptcy. You see, as we close out today's passage, we see that, uh, we see that, um, that not only was, was Peter preaching of God's grace, but he was an example of it. It would be very easy for us to, to put ourselves in Jesus' shoes and cast Peter aside with the mindset of, hey, I don't know about you guys, okay? I'm, this is, I'm a sinful person, don't get me wrong, but like whenever someone cuts you off while you're driving and then you get farther down the road and then they need to get over again, are you very graceful? Because I'm not. Like, I, I mean, I hold a grudge on the road, right? On 72 at like 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, it gets really tough for me. Like I'm praying a lot in my vehicle, right? Because, because I'll hold a grudge whenever someone cuts me off and then needs my help later on. I just, I'm a sinful person. Please pray for me, right? But if I'm that quick to cast them aside, if I put myself in Jesus' shoes, I sit there and think, man, there's no way in the world that I would redeem Peter. You see, Peter, at Jesus, at the time that you would think Jesus needed him the most, Peter bailed on him. Peter denied him. Peter vanished. Peter, Peter tried to distance himself as far away from Christ as possible. 
Yet because of God's grace, Peter was not only restored, but was used by God for this, for this first sermon in the age of grace to proclaim the grace that God has for his people. You see, it's very beautiful that, uh, that, that this is not only a message of grace, but it's an example of grace. But as we close out today's passage, we're going to see that uh, we're going to see what uh, that, that Luke offers a significant uh, a list of significant descriptions of what a healthy body of Christ looks like. You see the proof there. This this is proof of two different things. You see, first the Holy Spirit changes us. You see, the Holy Spirit is uh, it changes uh, it changes God's people. You see, when we are chosen by God, He gives us His Holy Spirit for which we are forever changed. The second thing that this proves is that the Holy Spirit equips both us uh, equips us both in understanding scripture as we see in Luke chapter <clears throat> chapter 24 and it also uh, in the strength of following God's will. So as we as we finish out this passage in, in Acts chapter 2 uh, beginning in verse 38 says and Peter said to them repent. So this is this is after Peter had got, had had just completed um, teaching about about all the things that Christ has done. Peter then said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort, uh, exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's what you would call, by the way, at uh, Spurgeon's Preacher College, a successful sermon, right? 3,000 people um, were added, but uh, we're gonna, we'll get to that in just a moment. 3,000 souls were added, and then verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came Upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any, as, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, we see this as an incredible, an incredible response to this message. You see, the message was simple. As I mentioned earlier, Peter simply proclaimed Christ. And this is important because we see that God added three souls that day. You see, I made a, I made a joke earlier, this would be a successful Sermon. There was no. There's no way to manipulate. There's no way to trick um, people into salvation. You see, this serves as a reminder for those in Christ that God is sovereign over all, which includes salvation. And then we get a glimpse of what a spirit-filled church looks like, which brings us to our last point this morning. It says God's God calls and the Holy Spirit empowers Christ followers to live in unified community for the sake of the gospel. You see, in the closing of uh, Acts 2, as we're wrapping up, you see uh, Luke, uh, the writer of Acts, gives a description of what, the, of what a healthy body of Christ looks like. You see, it's imperative that we remember as, as we kind of look through this, that with Luke being the author of Acts, Luke was actually a physician. He was a doctor. 
He was a physician that uh, took care of patients dealing with fractures and dealing with colds, with dealing with diseases. However, you could also argue, as many theologians do, that, uh, that, uh, that Luke was also a spiritual doctor as well. You see, he was, a Christ, he was a Christ follower whose mission was to strengthen the figurative body of Christ, the church. He summarized what, uh, what made a spirit-filled congregation healthy. And after all, we've, uh, we've just seen how the church was born. You see, Peter preached uh, a Christ-exalting sermon where God called 3,000 people back to him. We see the establishment of the church. And then God builds, you see, God builds the church by his word. Pastor Tony Morata writes, Just as God spoke creation into existence in Genesis, he speaks a new creation, his, his new community, into existence through his mighty word. You see, the reason for the church is an important one. The church is God's plan to reach the world with the message of the gospel. You see, Christianity is not intended to be individualistic. It is very much a corporate, shared, communal gathering. You see, as we saw in Acts 1, the importance of God's people, uh, or I'm sorry, as we see in Acts 2, the importance of God's people gathered together. We see that it is important. Um, it is a very important thing for them to take part of. In fact, if you, if you look at it, one of the reasons why during this season of COVID that we've We've all probably felt funky. We felt we have felt out of place. It's because we've we're not experiencing church community like we're used to, right? We're still able to gather together, but it's not like it used to be. It's not it's not as warm and uh, and loving as it maybe uh, once was. However, we are grateful that we're able to still gather together because because uh, as I said, we see a description of the healthy church body. You see the first one that we see descriptors of is that, uh, that the church, the early church, was devoted, had a devotion to the Word. You see, they had a devotion to God's Word. That's a very important thing for any, any church, any body of believers, is devotion to God's Word. The second thing we see is they were devoted to one another. There's a devotion to one another. They also had a devotion to the breaking of bread. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they just ate together. You know, they were, they were enjoying life with one another. They were sharing meals with each other. And I'm assuming during that time they were sharing the things of God during that time. You see, there's a, they also had a devotion to prayer. They were, they were praying. They were praying for their community, praying for the church. Um, another, another description that we see in the closing of chapter 2 is that they, there was radical generosity. There was radical generosity, especially within the church body. Uh, especially within the church, uh, within the, ch- the local church body, we also saw that there is constant interaction with one another. They were consistently following up with one another. They were in- consistently involved in one another's life. We also see that there was gathering in both large and small groups. We see that in verse in the middle of verse forty-six. We also see there was a spirit of praise to God. They they did not allow. That um, they did not allow to be, or they weren't allowed to be distracted from the things that God was doing, that He was continuously doing. So there was a spirit of of constant praise to God. We also see that they were that they were displaying an attractive faith. You see, they were they were uh, they were consistently promoting the things that Christ has done, and we also see that there's a passion for daily evangelism, continuously sharing what Christ has done. You see, as we look over. As we look over this list of characteristics of a healthy church, we see that it's inevitable 
that it would occur as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, my prayer is that that would be our church's prayer this morning and for our lives that the Holy Spirit, that we allow the Holy, the Holy Spirit has empowered us and He's already equipped us for His great work. You see, the events of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, as we covered this morning, simply put, is one of the most important days in the history of Christianity. You see, God sent His Spirit to His children, empowering them for His mission. You see, we also see that there was a unification of language revealing that the gospel was for all people. And through Peter's sermon, we were reminded of how beautiful God's grace is. And all of this taking place while Christ is, is, seating, is sitting on His throne. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we are grateful for Your Word and we're grateful for the events of uh, what we see in Acts chapter 2 of Pentecost and of Peter's sermon and also the scriptures given for a healthy church. And God, my prayer, my prayer, God, is that we see, we see through your Holy Spirit coming to empower us, God, that you have empowered us for the mission that you've given the church. That you did not just leave us high and dry, you did not just give us a task and nothing and no tools to fulfill it. You have called us, you have given us everything that we need. So God, my prayer is that we will rely on you for all. God, I also, uh, through, Peter's, through Peter's sermon, pray for, some, uh, for us to be encouraged as it is a model of your beautiful grace that we do not deserve. God, it's proof that you use messed up people all the time. And God, I also, we're also grateful that you, that you listed out you know, descriptors of what a healthy church looks like. And while that's not a checklist of of stuff that we have to accomplish is something, God, that we should strive for so that we can see our body of believers in a healthy manner in which we are going and, uh, and, uh, and making disciples who make disciples for your glory, Lord. We love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.